Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 127, for the 24th of December, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. Uh, welcome back from your travels. Thanks. Yeah, I had uh, a, a lovely trip uh, to Japan for some uh, from product launch stuff here at Sophos in, uh, in a week's holiday. So between all the hours on the plane and then all the hours relaxing, I think everything is uh, sort of back into equilibrium and time to do a chat chat. So we'll squeeze three into one, shall we? <laughs> we'll, give, we'll, we'll give that a try. Um, uh, unfortunately, it, it starts with some rather bad news that's kind of related to the holiday, especially for people listening in the United States. Uh, I think everyone at this point's probably heard about this giant Target credit card breach, you know, something around 40 million card numbers stolen in, in, a, in, in the U.S. in particular. The busiest shopping day of the year is known as Black Friday, the day that uh, large companies like Target go into the black and become profitable from the large quantity of Christmas purchases. And that's at the end of November, which is kind of uh, right at the beginning of this breach. So it really couldn't have been at a worse time. It almost beggars belief, doesn't it? You know, what can you say? Because we still don't really quite know how it happened. It's not really clear how the crooks got this data. It sort of smells as though they've got you know, information coming live out of the system as the transactions are going on, doesn't it? Yeah, I think with many retail breaches that we're seeing, this is more and more the case. PCI has driven organizations, especially ones that process large quantities of cards, to, to follow the rules, to, to not store card data unencrypted where it could just be lifted. And that means that the crooks have to sniff it live. But clearly, they've developed that capability. I mean, this is 40 million examples, uh, apparently, because the, the card data, as Brian Krebs has pointed out, is already for sale on underground criminal forums. Chester, the thing that mystified me, and maybe, maybe this is actually speculation rather than fact still, I've read that even CVVs are included here. Now, if these guys are actually sniffing transactions or getting access to transaction data that was done in stores, how on earth does the CVV, you know, the, the magic code on the, that's printed on the back of your card, get into it when you don't use the CVV, when you're there and you hand over your card? Yeah, that, that is an interesting question. And I guess to clarify for people uh, in the payment card industry, there's terminology when you make a transaction, say, over the internet, or maybe if you call a toll-free number to order from a catalog, that's considered a card-not-present transaction. And the, the way they verify that you physically have it on the other end of the telephone or over the internet is to get that printed number off the back because that number is not in the card data in the chip or it's not in the stripe on the back of the card. It's only in print physically on there. And so that is a bit odd, isn't it, Paul? I guess. Target still doesn't quite know exactly what happened. My understanding is it took them from the day before Thanksgiving until the 15th of December before they realized that something fishy was going on. I guess we'll find out probably in 2014, huh? Do you think it's fair to say that this was a targeted attack? <laughs> oh, Doc. Sorry. The, um, Go on to some good news, Chester. Yeah, well, while I was out on holiday, uh, Microsoft, of course, released their standard Patch Tuesday release for the month of December. 
kind of business as usual with most things, you know, your standard batch of patches. I think the thing that stands out the most is they did fix the zero-day vulnerability we reported on back in November that was related to the TIFF image rendering uh, flaw that was present in almost all versions of Windows. So that's good news and, and incentive enough that hopefully everyone's already rolled out those fixes. Yes, and I think it's it's nice to see because this is the year in which the 10th anniversary of Patch Tuesday occurred uh, back in October. It's good to see that Microsoft is more responsive. Microsoft couldn't fix it in November because they only had a week uh, after the zero day became known. But the fact that they were able then to knock this on the head for everybody on all versions of Windows the month after, a very good sign. Yeah, and you know we were discussing before the podcast, but I think it's worth reiterating it, 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 that not only has Microsoft um, had a big turnaround in how they treat security as a company, but they've kind of set the standard for everybody to follow, right? They've set the standard for how they communicate with the community, how they communicate with security researchers, um, the predictability for IT administrators and even home users to know when is the time that they need to be paying attention for fixes that could affect their security and privacy. Yes, and the other thing that we've seen a couple of times at least this year is that Microsoft haven't been quite as strict as perhaps they were in the past about absolutely not telling you what was coming up in Patch Tuesday until Patch Tuesday arrived for security's sake. Sometimes they have said, like this month, we're not going to be able to fix that XP kernel vulnerability in time, so don't expect that fix to appear. So it's sort of loosened up on actually giving advance information on the grounds that it probably benefits people who are trying to protect themselves more than it helps crooks who figure, hey, I've got another month to exploit that vulnerability. That would be a good lead for a company like Apple to follow, in my opinion, because Apple do seem to stick very strongly to that idea that we will not say anything about this security issue until the fix is ready. Yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned Apple and that I was going to uh, use them as the example of a company that seems to have learned nothing from Microsoft in that uh, there's no way to even know that there's a patch coming at all, let alone what's in the patch. Uh, I can't name an organization that doesn't have a, a reasonably large number of Apple computers uh, in the company now. And not only in the company, but managed by professional IT staff who are struggling with the lack of communication. The new version of Mavericks just came out, right, last week? Um, where there, there were security updates in that, right? Well, that was the funny thing. 10.9.1, I thought, great, I shall go and grab that. There are bound to be security fixes. When I went and read up about it, when you get to the end of the list of things that have been changed and fixed, which kind of just look like you know feature adjustments or user interface improvements, at the end it says, oh, by the way, on Mavericks, on 10.9, this update includes an update to Safari 7, which does include some critical security fixes, things like remote code execution, if you don't mind. There was a corresponding update for Safari version 6, which users of OS 10.8 and 10.7, that's Lion and Mountain Lion, will need. But still absolutely no hint, no statement from Apple about whether there are ever going to be any security fixes for those still reasonably recent previous versions of their operating system. It kind of looks as though Apple's already pulled the plug on providing security fixes for those. Well, I, I would comment on it, except it's a mystery because Apple isn't communicating. So 
you should either take action or not take action, but I can't really tell you which because uh, Cupertino is not willing to, uh, to, sh to share that information with us, I guess. It's a secret. Being open about what their plans are and combining that with perhaps a week's notice when they're going to release uh, security fixes so that IT teams can uh, prepare for how they might roll out those fixes to their Macs or verify that they've been rolled out correctly and that kind of thing would certainly be helpful. In this case, a little may go a long way. Indeed. So there was some really interesting research I saw you write about on Naked Security. Listening for someone's secret encryption keys? This story really tickled my fancy because as I wrote on Naked Security, the very first computer I ever was allowed to use all by myself was an old ICL-1901A mainframe. And one of the address lines on the processor was actually wired up to a speaker in the teletype so that it made a click every time that bit in the address changed, which meant that when you were in a loop or when you were accessing memory in a certain pattern, you actually got sounds that were, if not musical, at least repetitious enough that you could use the sound as a debugging aid. So I was amazed to find that all these years later, with CPU speeds millions of times faster, that there are still acoustic emanations that a computer makes that you can analyze and will tell you something about what the computer was up to. And as you say, in this case, uh, they could basically, from acoustic emanations, recover your RSA private key, which of course means that then they can read all your email and sign email as if you had sent it. And it was quite astonishing that they were able to do this with reasonably inexpensive microphones, including the sort of microphone you'd get in a mobile phone, which you might very well have near your computer. So all six of us who use GPG encryption for our email should be scared? In the attack that they detailed in the paper, they chose to look at the behavior of the 1.4 series of GPG. The attack wouldn't work if you upgrade to GPG2 because that includes code that is deliberately designed to make it hard to inject known ciphertext into the uh, algorithm in a way that you might measure things like time and power consumption. That's a technique known as blinding. Uh, the idea is that you make things harder for an attacker to control exactly how the algorithm is going to unfurl. So yes, the attack was predicated upon you using an, the older version of GPG, indeed, and a very particular email client as well, and a whole load of conditions had to apply. But even if you disregard all of that, uh, it's intriguing what your computer says about you, uh, not just behind your back, but inaudibly to your face. Yeah, and I think this is also one of those situations where we learn about something that perhaps could be developed further in the future and, and, and be more of a risk. And as a result, we're already seeing, uh, you know, this, this uh, blinding, as you say. Uh, in products to prevent it. So, I mean, I, I love that we can learn a lesson before it's a practicable exploit and just prevent it from really working in the future uh, w without having had to pay the price of it being widespread, like, say, Fire Sheep. I'm going to end this story with uh, something that's a little concerning for privacy. Google recently made a change to their uh, Gmail product to display images by default on any message that has been verified with SPF or DKIM. And without getting into a lot of details on, on SPF and DKIM, in essence, these are ways of 
uh, trying to verify that the sender of a message is in fact who they claim to be and not being forged to be someone else. It's a big bump on privacy, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of information that can be uh, discerned from someone who's loading graphical objects from advertisers' websites, isn't there? When one talks about this to people, the usual response is, hey, when I go to a web page, I don't normally turn images off. Why shouldn't it be the same inside an email, particularly if I'm reading that email inside a web browser? How does it differ from the web scenario? And of course, it differs because usually when you go to a website, you initiate the transaction and you begin browsing around by making hopefully informed choices about where to go. But when you open an email merely to look at it, to see whether you want to take it further, it's, a, in my opinion, a step too far that by default, you go and suck in all this external content with an HTTP request, which of course gives away a whole load of information to the person who's running the server that sends back those images. So that's the big difference to me between having auto-rendering of images and external content in emails compared to having that sort of stuff show when you're browsing the internet and you're the one making the running. Well, and that's just the privacy concerns of this, right? I mean, there's also the security side uh, independent of privacy. I mean, we just talked about Microsoft fixing a TIFF vulnerability in the Windows kernel. We did indeed. You know, that TIFF image could easily have been contained in a targeted email to a Gmail user that would automatically render and exploit them. And, and that's just, um, that's unnecessary risk in my opinion. I don't see the, the, uh, the equation being in favor of displaying images because DKIM and SPF saying that a sender is who they say they are sounds great on the surface until you realize any crook can register any domain and register an SPF record uh, in all of about 10 or 20 seconds or probably automate it with a bot. That's the other thing. SPF doesn't really say who you are. It just simply says which server delivered the mail. It's like that confusion about how you know who's on the phone. And my understanding is in North America, you guys call it caller ID, as though it somehow identifies the person who's actually making the call on the other end of the phone. Whereas elsewhere in the world, uh, we call it CLI, uh, calling line identification. It merely tells you which telephone line is being used. It doesn't say anything about the caller, him or herself. And, you know, SPF is the same sort of thing for email. It doesn't validate the person sending. Yeah, I, I figured that we had learned our lesson back in like 1999 that, you know, automatically rendering objects that are sent in anonymously to your mailbox is a bad idea. Um, we'll see if Google sticks with this. But for those of you that are Gmail users, uh, it is quite easy to turn it off. If you go into your preferences, it's front and center on the main preferences page uh, of your Gmail account. So I encourage you to turn it off. And uh, if you like the convenience of it, I suppose you can leave it on, but understand the risks. Yes, and of course, take this as an opportunity if you're a user of any other email client or a webmail service, Outlook.com, for example, to go into the settings of that email service and make sure that you have things locked down in the way you intend. Thanks, Doc. Um, and with that, I'll conclude Software Security Chat Chat 127. As always, you can get all of our podcasts at soundcloud.com slash security. And for the latest news, you can go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. You can find us on iTunes. We've got RSS. And uh, until next time, 
stay secure.